0: If you were here last weekend, then you would probably agree that our visit to the stable in Bethlehem in February was way different than our visit to the stable back in December. Uh, Eric and Rob, the worship team, Nicole, Ronnie, uh, Heidi, uh, Tac was uh, Mary as you know, and Catlin, uh, Joseph, uh, they, they didn't just put us in the stable last week. They put us in our stable In our own personal stable. In that place where there's questions and pain and disappointment and fear. And because in that stable there was a baby, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Then we were able to leave that service with a song on our hearts It's going to be worth it. And we could sing that, listen, not because everything worked out, not because all the pain's gone, not because all the disappointment dissolves. Why could we sing that song? We could sing it because God is present. He is with us. And he's in control. If you missed it, I can't encourage you enough. When you get on the website, make sure you watch the whole service from last week. It leads us to this week. Today, Luke takes us from the stable up to the temple. Whenever we go to Jerusalem in the Bible, it's always up because it's up in elevation. And in fact, Luke gives us two glimpses of Jesus's life that we do not find anywhere else in the Bible, y'all. So these next two messages, two trips to the temple, if Luke didn't record them, we wouldn't even know them. It's just a little glimpse into the young life of Jesus. We're going to look at the first trip to Jerusalem today and the next week I'm going to walk us back to Jerusalem and we're going to go there 12 years later and it's going to be a Passover that Joseph and Mary never forgot, and we won't as well. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm going to ask you to stand. It's a rather long passage, but I like to read the whole thing on this one because I just want you to get, here's the whole context. Here's the whole story. We begin in verse 21, and just follow along in your Bibles as I read it. Uh, Follow along reading and listening the Word of God to us today. And when, the, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived, conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord." And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his, this is Jesus's father and mother, were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul." To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, 39 and 40. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And Father, we would ask your blessing on this reading of your word and spirit that you might open our eyes as we teach and learn and enable us to apply what we're learning that Jesus might be lifted up. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Uh, Let me give you a little visual picture if I can for some of you who think this way. Picture this passage like two bookends With two books in the middle. That's what the passage looks like. Two bookends holding up two books. The first bookend, if you will, is 21 to 24. They go up to Jerusalem. The first bookend. I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but note verses 39 and 40, the back bookend. They go home. They go up, they go home. The bookends are holding two books. The first book is the song of Simeon verses 25 and 35 through 35. The second book would be Anna's pronouncement, 36 to 38. Now as any picture I'm giving you, you know, on a bookshelf, with the bookend, bookend and the books, what's the most important thing in this picture? The book ends or the books? The books or what really matters, not to diminish the bookends at all, but I want you to see that's what Luke is pointing us toward. Leaving your finger here, I need you to turn, or I'd like you to turn, if you you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn, back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. So you're going to go all the way back, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 35. And I want to do this real quickly because before we study the passage, we're going to answer the question, what's Luke up to? I mean, what's he doing in this section? And I think we'll see it as we examine some of these Old Testament passages. Luke, or Numbers, 35 verse 30. This is in the giving of the law, the rules and regulations for life in Israel. Notice what Moses records. It says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. Plural. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Flip over in your Bibles. Go to Deuteronomy. It's the next book. Go to chapter 17. Moses er, continues to record God's principles and God's regulation and God's laws. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, notice verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Witness. Now, flip all the way over in your New Testament, past Luke to the Gospel of John. Again, you're covering thousands of years. This is the amazing thing about the Bible, one book, one story. And notice what Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, verse 17. He's actually quoting those verses we noted earlier. He says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Now, the reason I go through that is to say in life and death situations, one witness is not enough. You need two or three. When we get to Jesus, we're talking about life and death. And Luke says, I've got a few witnesses, plural, I want to present to you. Who can speak to who this baby is. Is. You with me? So when we read this passage, it's Luke calling witnesses to the stand. Book end, book end, two books, he calls two witnesses to testify of Jesus. Now, there are two implications of this for you and I that I'd like you to consider. The first is this when these witnesses speak, no one will leave the room today undecided about Jesus. Nobody. And some of you are going, I will, because I'm not there yet. (laughs) You know, you can't tell me what I can think and not think about Jesus. And I'm totally with you. I I can't read your mind. I can't even make that statement for you. What I'm saying, or what Jesus is actually going to say, and I'll comment on this later, is that if you're undecided, you've made a decision. That's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus is going to say. Okay, hold that thought. The second thing is that when we pay attention to what these witnesses say and and what they do, it's like we get a picture of what the Christian life is going to be like. If we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be like they did. It's going to be like what they do. And when we have that, you and I, we can take our own life and we can, in a sense, match it up and go, gosh, does does my life look like that? It's a great tool for you and I really as we live out our own mission as a community of faith to mature in the faith. What what, what does it mean for me to mature if this is a picture of maturity? Two things we'll learn as we go through the passage. Well, I'm going to walk us through some cultural, historical, theological points here. Help us understand it. We'll make some application as we go. 21 to 24, coming up to the temple. Let me summarize it for you. Joseph and Mary are doing everything they can to raise this boy and live according to the law of God. That's what verses 21 to 24 are saying. Look at verse 22. Note, well, I won't go through it, but four times, four times in this passage, it says the law of God, the law of God, according to the law of God, according to the law of God. Clearly, they want to submit themselves to the law of God. Why is this important? Let me jump ahead to Galatians four four. Paul writes this. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Why is this important? Because if Jesus is going to come and redeem us or save us or rescue us from this burden of law that we can't keep. (laughs) We can't keep the law. We just can't do it. Well, if he's going to redeem us from under it, he must be born under it himself. He must submit himself to the law of God and then fulfill that law perfectly if he's going to rescue us from under it. You see that? That's why it's so important. And so even passively, can we say this? As a baby, under the care of his parents, he fulfills the law. The law of God stated that a mother of a male child was impure for seven days. And then for 33 more days, she was not to go to the temple. She was not to go to the synagogue. She was not to engage in any religious activity at all. But at the end of those 40 days... Days of their purification in the text. At the end of those 40 days. She was to go to the temple. And there offer a lamb. As a burnt offering. And then offer a turtle dove. As a sin offering. That she might be cleansed. Now isn't it interesting. When they go for Mary. To make these sacrifices for her cleansing. It says they had. A pair of turtle doves. Or two pigeons. That was a provision for poor people. They didn't have the money. They, they lived in some, in, in, you know, in poverty, so to speak, which tells us this. Just connect this dot. They couldn't afford the lamb, and so they did the poor person's sacrifice. It tells us that the wise men had not given them all those gifts yet, right? For if they had all that, they would have been able to afford the lamb, for their sacrifice. The law required a male child be circumcised 8 days after his birth. Why? Because that was the sign of the covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, "Circumcise all the males. This is the sign that I'm in covenant with you. Jesus is a son of Abraham. The law required that every firstborn child be dedicated to God. The law said that when a firstborn child is born, then that those parents need to bring that child to the to the temple. They need to They didn't actually have to bring the child to do this, but they had to go to the temple and present the child, so to speak, and say, this firstborn is yours, God. And then they would give five shekels and redeem the child back and go back and raise the child. But they always knew the firstborn son, the son that carried on the name, that son belonged to God. Jesus is circumcised and named. They traveled to Jerusalem to make sacrifices for Mary's impurity, Parentheses, Mary was not sinless, in parentheses. And they go there to present their firstborn son to God. If I could say it like this, Mary and Joseph were doing everything they knew to do. Real simple. They're just just doing what they know to do. And and I want to step back from the text for a moment. Actually, I'm going to jump ahead in a second. Just to, to, to apply something here that I think is... Really important for us in our own journeys of faith. If I were to ask you, and don't raise your hand on this, because I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but kind of raise your hand in your own mind or in your heart. But if I were to ask you to raise your hand if, if you want more of God, if, if you're, you're at a place where you, you know, you, you're going, you know, I, I just would love to experience God like, like they did in the Bible. I, I, I. I just long for to really know him in my life. I wish he'd, you know, lead me and guide me like I see him doing in the Bible. If that's true, how many of you would say that's true in your life? Don't raise your hand, but just in your mind you go, I'm going to raise my hand because I would say that's true of me. And I would say it's true of many of you because I talk to you. I know in our community group, we talk about these things. And most of us go, I, I would love to experience God more deeply. Well, there's a principle. There's something here I don't want us to miss. Skip ahead in the text for me. We've read it, but look at verse 33. In Jerusalem it says, And his, his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Literally amazed. It means, you know, there's no trouble here. It means what you think it means. It's astonished. They were taken aback. They were astonished. In the words of fellowship, we would say they were wowed, right? We always say we believe believe in being wowed by God. Believe God to do what only he can do. And when he does it, we're left without words. Wow! They, They were like, wow! I can't believe this is happening. I want us to see that the wow for Joseph and Mary, this is important, came In the context of them doing what they already knew to do. This is important. Because many of us, we kind of go, I want the secret to being amazed. What are the keys, you know, to amazement with God? And boy, if this story tells us anything, it tells us that the path to amazement... Is doing what you already know to do. What's the next thing you know to do? Something's coming to your mind, right? What's the next thing you, just, what's the next thing you know to do? What's right in front of you? Do it. What's the door that's in front of you that you know you need to walk through? Or what's the door that's open that you know you just need to close and walk on? What's something that's coming to your mind right now that's like, that's... I know that's the next step. God's been after me on that. That's what I need. That's what I'm going to do. What's right in front of your nose? Grab it and do it. What I'm suggesting to us is that we experience God in amazing ways as we walk with God in very normal ways. Something came to your mind, I would think, and... Those last two minutes that I've spoken, as insignificant as it may seem, what came to your mind is your first step to astonishment. That's the way God works. And so we're going to sit right here for a moment. We're not going to wait for the so what at the end. Let's just stop right here. So what? The most important thing right now is not that I finish teaching the text. I'm going to do that. But you know what? That's not really the most important thing for you. The most important thing for you right now is just to go grab, grab that thought and go, okay. Would you sit with that for a minute? Maybe you need to write it down. Maybe you just need to mark it in your mind. What's the next thing? Think about that for a moment for you. we'll go on through the text. Once in Jerusalem, they're in the temple. Luke introduces us to the first witness, right? Book in, book in, witness, witness. First witness, Simeon. Three things we know about him. He's righteous and devout. Means he's God-fearing. He walks with God. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? It means he's looking for the Savior. Consolation of Israel equals the Messiah that was promised. He's looking for God to deliver on his promise to send a Savior. Third thing, he's in relationship with the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting how compressed these verses are in that in this, you know, these three verses, you find Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit mentioned three times. Spirit was upon him. He's given a promise by the Spirit and he came in the Spirit to the temple complex. First question about Simeon. Let me ask you this. He's a witness. I'm not being silly on this at all. This is what Luke wants us to see. Is Simeon a credible witness? Based on the text. Like five star with flying colors. Yes. Mary and Joseph weren't the only ones dedicating that day. This temple complex is huge. And next week, I want to hopefully get to show you some pictures. Imagine being at a Titans game and, and uh, you know, all the people inside, outside, tailgating. You know, this is like a temple complex. And of all those thousands of people, they're not the only ones dedicating a child that day. They're not the only ones making sacrifices. And on that day, Simeon, God fear, connects with Mary and Joseph and the baby. Amazing. How could those people connect in that crowd according to the text? How did that happen? How did it happen? The Holy Spirit led them. Question. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit of God still leads his people like that? Yes or no? Yes. Yes which tells us pay attention to who God brings across your path in the craziest places and ways for the spirit continues to lead just like he did here. He's holding this baby and he says, it's the sal- I've seen the salvation of God. And the big part of the passage, by the way, is when he holds the baby up, he says, salvation In the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. What's he saying? I'm looking at this baby and he's the savior of the world of all peoples. Having seen Jesus, he's ready, he says. I'm ready to die in peace. Now, I don't know that God has promised anyone in the room... That you will not die before something happens. Here's what I do know. God has said to each one of us. Until you see Jesus. With the eyes of Simeon. You are not ready to die. You're not ready to die. I want you to know. I'm just going to speak from personal statement here. I've seen him. I've seen Jesus. Jesus the one that Simeon saw with eyes of faith. By God's grace, there was a time in my life when I saw that Jesus was the son of the living God and that he lived a perfect life. And that when he hung on the cross to die, he didn't die because he was being punished for his sin. He died because he took my rebellion and said, Lord, I'll take it. I'm going to take your punishment and the wrath you deserve. And I'm going to die in your place. And he did. And he was buried. And he was raised three days later. I trust that Jesus. I've seen him with the eyes of Simeon, with the eyes of faith. And men and women, when I die... And I will, I will depart in peace. Will you? Have you seen Jesus with those eyes of faith? Again, we're going to stop right here because you know what? There's more to the passage, but there's nothing more important than that. Until you've seen Jesus like Simeon did, you're not ready to die. And I'll go further than that. If you're not ready to die, may I suggest you haven't even started living yet. You you go, Yes, I have. No, you haven't. You haven't even started living, for you live, as the New Testament says, with this constant fear of death. And until that's gone, until you go, I'm ready to die, then you live. But you're not even living if you're not ready to die. Are you ready to depart in peace? Just sit with that for a minute. Well, then he turns to Mary and he gives us a picture of what this child's life is going to look like. Let me read it again and you can look in your Bibles, verse 34. He turns, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be Revealed. Let me explain that. For the fall and rise of many. It's the picture of a stone. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus was a stumbling stone. Some people came up on the stone and stumbled and fell. Some people believed and lived. That's what he's saying. To fall would be, there are going to be many who aren't going to believe Jesus. Aren't going to see Jesus as Simeon saw Jesus. And they will fall. They'll die and they'll spend eternity apart from God. There will be many who believe and trust Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did. And those will rise. Literally, in your Bible, if you note in your, col- in your column, you might have this. That word rise is resurrection. So it's, you're gonna, he's, he's here, to, many are going to die, but some are going to live because of Jesus. He's a sign to be opposed. And it goes on and says that thoughts from hearts may be exposed. Opposition is going to reveal. He's going to be opposed everywhere he goes. But the opposition is only going to reveal the heart of the opposer. It's not going to do anything to Jesus. I'll say something about that in a moment. He says to Mary, a sword will pierce your heart. That word sword, you know, there's, there's, there's some words for sword that mean dagger. This is not that word. This word is William Wallace sword. This huge sword's going to pierce your soul. Mary, we're not sure what that means, but it seems to mean Mary's going to experience, obviously, tremendous pain in her son's rejection, and she'll be there at the crucifixion. It's unnatural and heart-wrenching. It's not right, right, for a parent to bury the child. It's not right. How inconceivably painful would it be for the mother of God... To bury God, a sword is going to hurt you. Let me give you three words that I think will help us understand what he's saying here. The first word is this division. It's going to be tremendous division everywhere Jesus goes. Look at the side screens. There's There's a fork in the road because that's what Jesus is. He's a fork in the road. When faced with Jesus, there are only two choices. You either go with him or you go against him. As I said earlier, no one's going to walk out of this room undecided about Jesus. And I know you're going, well, yeah, I am still am. That, that's okay, but here's what I meant. Jesus is going to say in Luke 11:23, 23, he who is not with me is against me. Now that sounds like two options to me. If you're not with me, you are against me. This isn't a three-way stop sign. This is a fork in the road. It's why we've got that class starting point. So we can go to a place and go, you know what? I'm, I'm against him right now. I'd love to know more about this. Please know this. Before I place my faith in Christ or anyone in this room, you were against Jesus. You can say, no, I wasn't. I was a- no, you were against him. I was against him. That's what we all are. Until we bow the knee to him. Division, there's a second word, affliction. People close to Jesus will get hurt. It will be painful the closer to him that you are. Division, affliction, and last opposition. The guy is just going to be opposed everywhere he goes. It's not that Jesus brings out the worst in people, gang, it's that Jesus brings out the truth. In people, that's what he does. See, see, the truth about Jesus is not contingent upon what I think of Jesus. In the same way that right now I can look at you and go, you know what? I no longer believe in gravity. I think gravity is a crock. Does that do anything to gravity? <laughs> no. You know, I think if anyone was fortunate enough to get over to the Frist Museum this summer, they had this amazing uh, exhibit, The Birth of Impressionism. And I think we'd all agree that those masterpieces on the wall, Cezanne, Monet, Renoir, they weren't, they weren't up there for you and I to walk through and judge them. Could you imagine, again, we go, I go through there with a buddy and I turn to my buddy at the end of the thing. I go, dude, that was not very good. I mean... <laughs> I could have done some of those, right? Now, are the paintings diminished by my judgment of them? No. What's exposed? Lloyd is an idiot. <laughs> I mean, you are an idiot, dude. That, that, that's all that's exposed. In the same way, please understand, Jesus, when people oppose him. And, 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 you know, I'm not trying to be offensive, but Jesus is offensive. When you oppose him, you're only exposing you, Well, you don't diminish Jesus at all. What Simeon seems to be saying is that wherever Jesus is present, there's turbulence. Wherever the guy is, there's just this stuff stirred up around him. I got a picture I want to show you here. And many of you know this guy. Remember Pig Pen from Snoopy? Just a reminder and take it in the right way. That's how Jesus is. Everywhere he goes, there's just dust flying around him, stuff. He just, just turbulence all around him. Now let's come at this from a different angle for our own application. If we're his disciples and we're following him, then wouldn't our lives exhibit some of the same turbulence? Wouldn't our lives create actually some crises in the lives of others? So a question worth considering. Is there any spiritual turbulence in your world right now? And if there isn't, why not? Let's think about that one for a minute. So what? How close are you to this tornado called Jesus and if you are what's going on in your world I remember reading a quote as a sophomore in college from the journals of Jim Elliot it it came to it hit me when I'm reading this I went that's Jim Elliot's quote, "I've got it up here on the side screen so you can get it. I'll read it. Listen to what he said. He wrote, "Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork, that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me." If Jesus is a fork in the road, am I? Well, I said there were two testimonies. Anna's is the second. It's very simple. 36 to 38, Anna's a prophetess. According to Luke, she was married seven years, probably between 12 and 13, 14 years old, married seven, widow for 60 plus. What did she do with her widow What did she do with her widowhood? She dedicated herself to fasting and prayer, for what, she says, for the redemption of Jerusalem. What does redemption of Jerusalem mean? It means the same thing as the consolation of Israel. It means the same thing as for the Messiah to come and save all of us. She dedicated her life to that. Same question we asked of Simeon. Let me ask of Anna. I'm not being silly. Is Anna, based on that, a credible witness? Absolutely. And what does Anna say when she runs into this baby Jesus? Well, the text says she spoke of him. In fact, the text says she continued to speak of him. In our own vernacular and what we've talked about at Fellowship over the last year when we talk about our mission... She proclaimed Christ. She saw the baby. This is the salvation of God. Hey, hey, this is the one. Hey, this is the Messiah. Hey, the consolation has come. She couldn't shut up. She just kept talking in the temple and telling everybody, this is him. Well, then they go home to Nazareth. That's 39 and 40. We'll pick up, really pick that up, connect it to the next week's message when they go again. You know, like many of you, close your Bibles, like many of you, I have been tracking with this story in Egypt and history being written there with some astonishment and wonder. It's been interesting to watch our own administration handle this, and I'm not throwing stones at all, but it hadn't been interesting early on, you know, they would, wouldn't give implicit endorsement to either side, right? So you had to walk this fine line. I mean, I mean, we can't stand over here and say, Mubarak's our guy, because what if Mubarak loses, you know? So you kind of go you know, tacit endorsement a little bit over here. They couldn't stand over here with the protesters and say, yes, go for it. Because what if Mubarak crushed them? Then they, so what does the administration do? Well, the administration walks this fine line or if I could describe it like this, they put a foot in both sides, right? But a fork in the road, you can only stand like this so long and then you can't stand like this anymore, right? I share that to say we are only two chapters into the gospel of Luke, Jesus, the son of God, has come. Luke has presented us with two impeccable witnesses. Jesus has not said a word. And Luke says, you got to decide now. Well, no, I want to wait to see if he really turns out to be... No, no, no. You decide now. There's enough evidence to decide now. He's the winner. He's the victor. He's going to come again one day. And when he does, it's too late. You can't choose then. And so these witnesses stand before us. And we're faced, again, only two chapters into Luke. And we're all faced with a crisis of belief. Some of us sitting here, maybe it's to believe for the first time. For others of us in the, this room, it's really to go, I know him, I believed him, I've walked with him for 30 years, but do I know for sure? Am I living like I know for sure?